HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing, taking place on Saturday, June 18th at Nettle Meadow Farm. For more information, visit NettleMeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. That's N-E-T-T-L-E, MeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, as usual, Kathy Irway, and we're here at Roberta's, as usual, the home of Heritage. Um, talking about a trending topic from last week, we saw the FDA trying to redefine a couple words commonly thrown around food, food packaging. Um, those words are natural and healthy. In one case, uh, the word healthy was being contested by the maker of Kind Bars. Um, you know, they, they kind of felt that the word healthy was outdated because they were criticized by the FDA for having too much fats in their foods. And they were sort of like, well, what's healthier, whole foods with nuts or more, you know, unnatural foods? And then there's a whole conundrum around the world natural in itself because it, it's, it's very sparsely defined just to mean sort of like no artificial ingredients. Um, and then this comes up a lot when makers of, of foods like Snapple or Natural Valley products have a lot of, uh, you know, they have high fructose corn syrup sometimes. They have other sort of unnatural product, uh, ingredients, but they're really marketed as natural. And uh, it's a really excellent question right now. As, as these terms have been defined over the years, how much should they change? And, and who decides what those changes are? Should it be the guy from Kind Bars, really? I don't know. Um, so my guest today might have some thoughts on that. She is an expert on the Back to the Land movement. She has written a beautiful nonfiction narrative book called We Are as Gods, just published April 26th. And um, I really, really, really enjoyed this book. Thank you so much for joining us, Kate Delas. Thank you so much for having me. Um, really amazing book. We'll get into that in just a second. But um, you kind of trace the history of what a lot of these meanings, as we understand them today, Mean. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on on how do we continue to define and like what are they what should they mean in your opinion? Is it 
no, no artificial stuff or does it go deeper than that? Should we have certifications like sort of around the word organic or is that detrimental in some ways to try to do that and put things in a box? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I was just thinking about it while you were um, explaining the the issue today. Mm-hmm. And of course, right away, I always think back to the 70s, which was the um, huge turning point in American eating yeah. um, in the cuisine generally, but especially in what we think of as natural food and organic food. Um, and it was sort of the birthplace of a lot of the businesses that, uh, and you beautifully kind of weaves in some of those stories of the cheesemakers, you know, starting their businesses. And um, this is also when we saw, we had a book a couple years ago on this show called Natural Profits that charted the history of companies like uh, Stonyfield and uh, Celestial Seasoning. So it's when, it's kind of like the birth of the marketing of natural almost too. Yeah, you know, it is, and it it depends on how you, uh, certainly the way we experience it today, the 30s was a really interesting moment for that too, sort of like wheat germ and, you know, vitamins, and there was a whole boom. It's an interestingly cyclical boom um, in American eating of deciding, oh, we're going to go pure, we're going to go natural, and then who who runs with it, and then how does it get commercialized after that? So if you think about... Just really quickly, you know, the turn of the century with, you know, that got us like um, graham crackers and, and cereal. If you've ever read that history, that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. And then in the 30s, there's kind of another one. Um, and then in the 70s, what brings us to the issue you're talking about today, this idea of organics, which um, organic had been, um, you know, I sort of trace a little history in the book, okay. but about that coming from the 1940s and this idea of compost um, and... Uh, and uh, organic material. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And how you would f- replace... Um, how you would replace industrial fertilizers, which were kind of new at that point because it's a post-war, um, uh, you know, it's uh, it's using the waste materials from uh, bomb making and, and wow, yeah, then that became a fertilizer um, and no kidding, yeah, and so the the, the post-war um, actually really kind of like yeah, the post-war organic boom was in response to that, and then in mm-hmm. the '70s, um, you know, I remember reading somewhere that like. The uh, the people who I write about, the Back to the Landers, who came to Vermont in one case, one of the pioneers, he was saying, like, he came, he arrived in Vermont, and they had, like, an organic club, kind of, like, left over from the 40s, and it oh. had a mailing list of, like, 20 people, and they got a hold of it, these radicals. I mean, they were Marxist, they were, like, really, you know, wearing, like, red stars, like, reading the Little Red Book, and, um, and really politically Marxist, preparing for revolution and th- seeing themselves as... Um, I- through food, and they got a hold of these mailing lists from the 40s, and they jumped up like to thousands of people instantly. And so mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, it's, they didn't invent it, but I think that's really telling that there was this sort of like organic movement coming from post war that the 70s, when they got a hold of it, just exploded it. And it really hasn't, it, you know, died down a little bit in the 80s mm-hmm. and 90s, but mm-hmm. now we're at, um, you know, the fact that it's ubiquitous, well, they wouldn't the even 40s. have thought about that. This sounds like the back to the land movement almost like skips a generation, just it goes along and along. Yeah. Because, you know, I was thinking of um, your book when I saw a few weeks ago in the BBC like uh, news site um, an article about these English countryside commune dwellers um, from the 70s. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of like, where are they now? What's happening now to this idyllic, you know, livelihood? And, and all the troubles they went through are very similar to the ones that you describe mm-hmm. in your characters in Vermont. 
And but anyway, so I posted this on my Facebook and was like, should we all just can we just screw it all and just go live in a commune? And, and like several of my friends were like, oh my god, yes, let's do that. <laughs> you could just you might want to just take some pointers from the book oh, before yeah. you just run off. I, you know, I'm I, so glad you did. <laughs> I mean, that's part of why I thought uh, you know, as I was you know thinking about this earlier, like the reason I wrote this book was because um, if there had been a book that kind of explored the pros and cons without being either too like, yes, this is the greatest right. idea ever, no problems, or like, this is the worst idea, it was totally frivolous. Like, the writing about the 70s and especially the um, the 60s and 70s and especially the really radical experiments tend to be either like, it was amazing, it was the best time ever, right. kids today have no idea, or like, they were ridiculous. And I just thought neither right. of those was very helpful You're to actually right. learn from it's, the past. It's often caricaturized, yeah. this Black to Land movement from the 70s. But you live through this now. So your parents were back to the landers. Yeah. They went to the uh, northeast kingdom of Vermont. Very cold place. Yes. <laughs> true. <laughs> Very, like, kind of rural place. Um, and uh, they tried to make do. And, and I got to wonder, now with, uh, you know, if Trump wins, a lot of people are going to think of <laughs> twice about going back to the land. I wonder. I mean, the reason my parents did it, and one of the things that was... Um, surprising to me was how much they felt at the time like they were just run like they just were running from yeah them. it wasn't it was yeah. less that they had a plan like here's how we're going to go live in um the countryside and more like oh my god we got to get out of here and that there was something there was some sort of like Walden pond yeah <laughs> like escaped. yeah yeah exactly i mean you know um i went to the woods because i wanted to live deliberately you know there was definitely that element of like wanting to live deliberately mm-hmm. and um it just seems to me there's something really elemental about wanting to put your hands in the dirt or like put your hands in like bread dough or like, you know, you know, get a hammer and some wood and like build a house. And I know that for my parents, they've both said really explicitly that was very grounding for them. And in a time in 1968, specifically for them, when they just weren't sure what was happening in the world, the idea of, you know, building and growing and making something made them feel calm. And that was true of a lot of people that I write about. Yeah. Let's talk about these, this cast of characters. Um, you really bring to life a lot of the, you know, not just the character-esque, you know, um, I, I guess sometimes, you know, the broad strokes of their ideals, but really like the interior hopes and dreams of these characters that are beautifully um, collected throughout your, I want to say it's almost like a novel, but it's, it's a nonfiction. I, that's such a compliment. That was my goal. I, you know, I wanted people who wouldn't normally pick up a book that included, mm-hmm. you know, four pages about the history hippies. of organic farming or hippies, you know? Yeah. I really wanted it to be um, appealing to different readers for different reasons. Right. Like even if you weren't interested in the topic, you might just think, Oh, here are these, here's this woman, uh, who you know wants something different from her life? Let's watch and see what happens to her as she goes along. So I, that's a huge compliment. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. So um, so speaking of one character, Lorraine mm-hmm. in this book, um, central figure. Um, do you want to read a uh, little excerpt from sure. her? Very early on, talking, reminiscing about food. Yeah. So this is Lorraine, um, who is herself maybe like twenty, I think, uh, when this takes place. And this is 1969. She's in uh, Boston. The Hare Krishnas were offering free meals you could share even if you didn't feel like joining in the chanting. Macrobiotic curries with brown rice and strange salty sea vegetables. Lorraine had never tasted curry before, but the blonde women stirring the big pots in their long pastel saris were patient with her questions. One day at the cafe where Lorraine worked, the girl who made the soup called in sick and Lorraine offered to do it even though she had no cooking experience. Lorraine's mother had hated kitchen work but felt strongly that it was the mother's duty alone to prepare the family's meals. 
She had never let Lorraine graduate past opening cans of asparagus or scooping dollops of mayonnaise onto iceberg lettuce. Lorraine had learned to satisfy her curiosity by checking cookbooks out of the library to read for pleasure. The soup she invented at the cafe was delicious. Just like that, she became a cook. <laughs> it's, it's, I can't even imagine what a can of asparagus is like. But it's so <laughs> funny how, like, radically they have to have or decided to break from their parents. Mm -hmm. A yeah. lot of it. I mean, how much of human motivation is out of like angst for what their parents did. I know. I mean, I have to say that, you know, I've said this to a couple of people, but you know, this book is not a, uh, a love letter to the parenting of the 1950s. <laughs> like, there was something, um, there was something that made, um, the, you know, young people at this time just, they wanted, uh, and I should say not everybody, but, but to a, a degree that certainly the people who went back to the land, a huge portion of it was anything that looked like the Eisenhower, era, uh -huh. anything that looked like the suburbs they wanted no part of. And for example, I was, even as a kid, thought it was pretty funny that, um, you know, I grew up again in northern Vermont in this hayfield, geodesic dome house at the top of a hayfield, and the field in front of our house, my mom always referred to it as a field, but, you know, we treated it like a lawn, and my dad mowed it with a lawnmower, and he, we were never allowed to call it a lawn. He would, my dad was nah. like ferocious. He was like, it's not a lawn, it's a field. <laughs> and I never quite understood oh why, he, why that mattered to him until, until I started really looking into this and was like, oh, okay, you know, why does it matter to have a house that's round? Like, why does it matter to have, um, you know, all these little details that to them read suburbia, you know, they really were serious about wiping out. And the, and the thing that to me is really interesting is when you work from that rebellion mode, mm -hmm. You, you know, they were surprised at how much they didn't um, rebel against that. You know, there's a scene sort of later in the book where Lorraine, who moves to helps found this hippie commune on nothing, just on a bare field. And they build it up from absolutely nothing with their bare hands. And then she gets to a certain point and realizes, oh, my God, we didn't actually even though we're, we just, you know, reject the nuclear family, we rejected plumbing, electricity, all this stuff. We have these patterns of interacting with each other that we brought with us from our own families that are continuing to be problems yeah. for us. And that by stepping away from the kind of trappings of that, you, you don't you realize don't. how much you've internalized <laughs> and you brought with you. Um, oh, so that, yeah, it was really interesting. Mm -hmm. So I guess, um, you, you know, you write very tenderly about this generation now, but I'm curious before that, and, and even maybe now, how do you feel about this generation? How do you feel about your parents' kinks, like quirks and everything? And I mean, I you hate it. <laughs> uh, you know, I went through a phase. I will say, I went through a phase after um, college where I was like, I'm not eating hippie peanut butter anymore, and I'm not eating brown rice peanut butter. <laughs> I was like, I'm what about the skippy? sea vegetable curry? Well, I didn't. Yes, that's true. I put a lot more salt in my food than my my mom did when we were growing up, um, but. Uh, you know, yeah, I think I went through a phase of being of sort of rebelling against that, and I definitely know that I have I have never and will never wear tie dye, um, and I can't. You know, <laughs> I see Birkenstocks in fashion now, and I'm like, I can't do it. Sorry, it's just when I have to sit out. And so I think I have those kind of like little mini rebellions. Um, but you don't live in a little hut or something. No, and, I don't. I live in okay. Brooklyn. You know, mm -hmm. um, I do have a garden, which I and I have had a garden um, the whole time I've lived in Brooklyn because I made it my business to join a community garden, and yeah. that was really set, that was a moment where I realized I could live in New York was when I could grow food, and I hadn't quite realized that. Like that, I think that's why I'm so sympathetic to that elemental, like putting your hands in the mm -hmm. dirt as part of feeling comfortable, um, and so. 
you know, there's ways I haven't, my parents can't understand why I live in Brooklyn um, when I could live where I grew up, which is incredibly beautiful. But I, I like walking out on the street and seeing people. I really do. It's thrilling to me every day. Um, And, you know, it's, it's great that you can forge, you can make it, you know, you can have your community garden, you can have those senses of, of the things that you want to take from growing up and still do it here. Um, can we talk a second about Bernie Sanders? Yes, please, let's. <laughs> he walks through this uh, book a little bit. Obviously, we know that he's from Brooklyn, mm-hmm. um, but he moved to the to Vermont in the 70s, mm-hmm. was fascinated by, um, I guess, the, the land, the culture, the, the, the values there. So he visited this commune, Myrtle Hill, a few times. Is that correct? I, yeah, he visit. I think he did visit a few times. There's only, in the book, he, there's only one scene where he visits, but it's pretty memorable. Um, he, so Lorraine, the main character, um, had just given birth at the commune, and uh, her first child was born in a hospital, and her second child was born there at the commune in, um, you know, this kind of, there's a couple home births in the book, and the first one is really, really idyllic, um, and everybody who was there described it the same way as just kind of being this magical communal birth experience that people had. And so Bernie, who was in the counterculture networks, um, mm-hmm. he had arrived in Vermont, I think maybe either the year, either one or two years before, and um, himself was renovating a um, sugar house into a house, which was very typical mm-hmm. of the move that people made at the time. Um, That's for maple syrup, right? Sugar house. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Sugar house is, yes, the building where, they, where you boil your sap into <laughs> syrup. Um, and he um, he pretty quickly moved to Burlington and got into I mean he got into politics quite mm-hmm. quickly, um, but he because he knew about this he was in the counterculture network he heard that Lorraine had had these two different kinds of births uh, birth experiences and he wanted to write about that and so he came to interview her and. Um, and, and what's amazing is Lorraine had been telling me, oh, I have a copy of that article somewhere. But because Bernie suddenly burst onto the national scene, like as I was, you know, writing, writing this book, this book. <laughs> uh, Mother Jones did a huge feature on him and somebody found the article and posted it online. And so one of the sources for me, I mean, the timing was great. One of the sources <laughs> for me for the scene in the book was written by Bernie Sanders <laughs> in his interview of Lorraine, amazing. which was lovely. Wow. Um, and then the other, you know, sort of, thing that happened was um, Bernie, as Lorraine would say, Bernie is Bernie. He's always been Bernie. And he uh, he just was interested in, t- at the time, um, he really was pressing the commune, pressing the people at Myrtle Hill to get involved politically and yeah. to reach out to their community and not stay isolated and really be involved and go out and talk to people and see what they needed and see how they could be of service. I mean, he was doing that, you know, from day one in Vermont. And, um, and so many of that appealed to many of the people at the mm-hmm. commune. However, they had also just been through this horrible winter and had almost died the winter before. And so they needed to get a certain amount of building done that summer. Mm. And so um, one of the other leaders of the commune, uh, Craig, um, they had just instituted a three-day policy of visitors because basically to protect themselves from crazy people coming through. Um, and so Craig... Uh, asked Bernie after three days, it was like, Bernie, I'm sorry, you've been talking about <laughs> politics for three days and we actually have to build something. <laughs> and so they asked him to leave. And that little tidbit wow. in the book got picked up by conservative blogs a couple of weeks ago. And they were all like, Bernie, Con- Bernie Sanders kicked off of hippie commune. What? Well, no, that's really interesting, though, that when you're when you have to build everything from scratch, you're pretty stretched thin for community others, <laughs> community engagement. Yeah. Um, 
Well, that's, that must have been frustrating for Bernie. Um. <laughs> I mean, you know, he found people who agreed with him, and, right, and they really right. supported him. They supported him as in his his political, like, uh, and including, well, I think the irony is including Craig himself, who the guy who asked him to leave, uh-huh. who really only asked him to leave because it had been three days, and they were like, come on, the <laughs> summer's short. we got to build some stuff. Um, and even Craig, like, you know, uh, campaigned for him later okay. on. And, um, wow. and he, so Bernie's support came from that back to the land, those numbers of people. Ah, yeah. It wasn't a falling out then. No, not at um, all. So we're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude, but so many more interesting seg- segments of the legacy from these people that we'll talk about right when we're back. Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing is a celebration of good food and beverages in the newly restored Barn Loft event venue at Nettle Meadow Farm in Thurman, New York. On Saturday, June 18th, come sample and savor, then buy your favorite cheeses and beverages to take home. Nettle Meadow cheeses have been praised highly in national media and have won prestigious awards from the American Cheese Society. Taste samples of goat and sheep cheeses paired with an array of local regional wines, beers, and ciders. You'll never forget your first sample of rich, creamy Kunick, Nettle Meadows' trademark cheese. In Esquire, our very own Anne Saxelby said, Kunick, it may very well be the sexiest cheese in the USA. Nettle Meadow Farm is a goat and sheep dairy and cheese company in Thurman, New York, just below Crane Mountain in the Adirondacks between Gore Mountain, North Creek, and Warrensburg. It's owned and operated by Lorraine Limbiase and Sheila Flanagan. Both have a great love of animals, artisan cheese, and the unique challenges of farm life. Nettle Meadow Farm was originally founded in 1990, and it's the home of over 300 goats, dozens of sheep, and a variety of farm sanctuary animals. Again, the Cheese and Spirits pairing is Saturday, June 18th. For more information and tickets, visit NettleMeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. That's N-E-T-T-L-E, MeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. All right, that was a note from our sponsor, and uh, I got to say that was kind of a very apt one to talk about today. Um, I'm speaking today with Kate Daylaws, the author of We Are Gods, Back to the Land in the 1970s, and The Quest for a New America. Really, really beautiful book. Um, so we were talking a little bit before we got on air about how how much lasting legacy this generation of Back to the Landers from the 70s have had on food brands. Um, one of them that you talk about a lot is cheese and cheese making and the rise of the American artisanal um, European style cheeses really happened during this time. Yeah. Um, and one of the characters got into that, right? Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that's been so interesting about learning so much about this time period is that I think we're really only now just starting to truly understand what the legacy is. But one of the most direct ways we can see it is on um, 
domestic cheese, you know, and and this idea that yeah, did goat cheese really exist in this country before? Well, or like, I'm sure someone listening will know more precisely. But the yeah. history that the, the way I've read the history from reading kind of big histories of um, American food is that of course it existed, mm-hmm. but it wasn't um, a common the, sort of the entryway into the American mainstream diet was through Chez Panisse and Alice Waters, and that she sort of in that 80s moment when when it became a hot ingredient that was sort of when that you know f- as a fashionable ingredient she is at least one of the big entry points and that her um her chef came from back to the land um goat uh farmers yeah. who had begun in the you know i think this is more we're talking about like the early 80s when, okay. when they be- begin to produce enough that it could you know have a, a widely felt impact but they started many of them in the mm-hmm. 70s or at least they got their goats in the 70s and so one of the it characters takes a while to start you know yeah, a cheese does. making you know venture well that's what i was noticing the other day i kind of tried to do just the most informal roundup of all the cheeses i could think of where i could identify that the producers at least came from this late 60s early 70s mm-hmm. impulse this radical impulse to sort of put yourself into the woods or to the fields or to a farm right. and then figure out what you were doing. Um, and, uh, and the goats, goats were like the hot animal in the seventies <laughs> for back to the landers. Um, <laughs> for a bunch of reasons, my mom was just talking about this. We did not actually own goats, but, um, they, you know, the, the, the for how much they eat, they give you a lot, you know, okay, the, the okay. amount of milk you get for how much a goat is eating is sort of a, aren't they very docile too? And they're just, I mean, they're kind super of, smart. They're yeah. kind of, they're kind of like, they're, just they're kind of badasses. Like they're like a little bit of like, um, they're rebels. They're sort of renegades. I mean, I think that I, um, there's a really great food historian named Warren Belasco and I wish I had in front of him. He has this great description of what appealed to the seventies, um, back to the landers about goats. And it's just awesome. You know, they're kind of like wily and smart and, you know, they'll survive off of scraps, but Hmm. then they give you all of this amazing creamy milk that, um, that people's parents Maybe didn't like. Maybe people saw something of themselves in these crazy looking goats. I think they did. And, I mean, goats are, they're, they're, there's a huge, certainly baby goats. There's like a tremendous appeal. Um, mm-hmm. But you could keep a goat. You know, you could you could sort of you could a goat was a good learning curve for learning yeah. how to milk and learning how to um, keep an animal that would give you quite sure. a lot in exchange, um, as opposed to a cow. Maybe felt like more of a commitment. Yeah. But um, so anyway, so people had goats, and they were you know had goats, and once you have a milking animal, you have a lot of milk. And so there's a um, one of the characters in my book uh, was not at the free love hippie commune with Lorraine, but there's a second commune that I write about this kind of a semi-commune they would have put it, um, which was two monogamous couples who were in a sort of co-farming, um, sure venture. And they, you know, exactly this, they sort of thought decided, Oh, we're going to, we're going to become farmers. We're going to, um, live off the land. And they just bought a ton of animals really quickly and then had not only a lot of work to do, which more work than they quite realized in advance was going to be yeah Yeah, exactly but they had all this milk and so um peg who's one of the the two women at the commune um kind you know she was really interested in cheese and in cheese making and in owning goats and she'd lived in spain as an exchange student in college and sort of seen how subsistence farmers there um in the place that she lived had goats and goat milk as a really essential part of their diet um and it 
really, really, really appealed to her. And so she got goats, and she has said a couple of times she got the um, Nubian goats, which have these long, if you see them, they have like long, beautiful, silky ears. ears? They're just gorgeous. Aww. And she was like, they're not the best milkers, but I loved them, and I loved them <laughs> aesthetically, and that's why I got them. Um, and so she, you know, immediately was overwhelmed with the amount of milk. They also had a Jersey cow, which gave, you know, amazing, delicious, creamy milk, but too much milk for four people, to for four adults to drink. And so she found herself in the position that people who've had milking animals for a long time find themselves where they have to preserve it. Otherwise, it's going to go bad. So she yeah. really quickly learned how to make cheese in order to um, not waste the milk. I mean, she would be the first to admit she could, you know, there was more than one person could keep up with. Um, so she, so they didn't preserve it all. But um, so she milk beauty bath. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe she did. I don't know. I could ask her. Um, but she, you know, they made yogurt. They made cheese. Mm-hmm. They made all different kinds of cheeses. Um, and... And for her, that learning curve, um, you know, she learned something every time. And she got to the point where she thought she was making um, hard cheeses. She was making chef, but she was making hard cheeses. And she just realized she didn't have enough, uh, like, she didn't have enough control over the environment. She didn't really have a cave. Mm-hmm. And so she couldn't control which um, bacteria were getting in the cheese. She didn't, couldn't control moisture. She was, um, she was aging them on a step on the cellar stairs, like a specific step, and it just wasn't enough control. <laughs> so what I thought was really interesting is that, you know, in her case, she hit that point where she thought, well, if I'm going to be a serious cheesemaker, i got to invest in, like, a cave. i got to invest in... Um, you know, the, the means to have more control over my cheese. And she chose not to. But... Other people all over the country at the same time who had the same impulse as her, they did decide to do that. And so she was friends, for example, with the people at um, Vermont Butter and Cheese who were Mm -hmm. kind of doing the same experimentation at the same time and then decided to take it to that next step and really be serious about it as a business. So to me, that's a really interesting moment that this experimentation being done by a a lot of people for a few people became a business. They just decided that the experiment was for real and they were going to stick with it. I love it. And I love how this story is so emblematic of, of... of, of a very different way of thinking, or is it like it started with this passion or ideals? Not really sure where we're going with that, but you know, like buying this Nubian goats just because you feel like it, not not as like a practical business uh, investment. And then that translating that dream into a viable business, I think, is really interesting. Whereas we see a lot of days, a lot of times now in the startup world, you know people starting with what's going to work okay let me crank some numbers here to run some big data and then then let's uh, you know go from there yeah i think you just nailed exactly the difference the generational Mm -hmm. difference that i that you know i feel less qualified to talk about what's happening now because i haven't looked as closely at the back to the land experiments that are happening now as i did at the 70s but to me you know if i was going to just characterize it what was so striking and interesting to me was the extent to which this sort of late 60s generation you know, two things. One, they were really apocalyptic. I hadn't quite realized like how, you know, I hadn't quite realized like how dire they felt the situation was. They just okay. felt like that there was going to be revolution or there was going to be an apocalypse. They, you know, these, this is people. Well, they who, must have then to take it upon themselves to do something yeah, so drastic. And absolutely. So yeah. I think that they had, um, you know, it was Vietnam. Absolutely. It was part mm-hmm. of it for, for that was a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I think to an extent that I'm not even sure everyone I've talked to recognized how much atomic fear, you know, this is the generation that grew up jumping under their desks for the atomic yeah. bomb. And a couple of people said, that, remember, a couple back to the lenders had this moment where adults were telling them, okay, get under your desk and it's going to, you know, you'll be fine from the atomic bomb. And they just were like, 
obviously that's not true. <laughs> so you've told me two things. We One, I'm not going to survive the atomic bomb. And two, adults, you're not trustworthy. You've just told me how I'm going to save myself, and you're obviously wrong. And that translated for them into, I have to say, A, I'm going to die, and B, if I'm going to save myself, I have to save myself. And so I just found that to be so interesting, that kind of like dual like optimism and pessimism at the same time right. like in this really intense tension and then the other thing that needs to be said is we're talking about very privileged people we're, uh, with and I mean that in the 2016 word, use of the mm-hmm. word privilege in all its ways it's people who um, almost all have um, it, you know the back to the land movement of this time was very white very middle class almost all um, suburbia suburban you know, escapees educated and mm-hmm. or at least if they hadn't actually gone to college it was almost all people on a college trajectory again not a hundred percent but mm-hmm. really a lot and to me when I started looking at that that helped me actually also understand that it was people who felt like they could take this risk because yes. they could always you know um, like my dad I remember saying that he knew he decided not to take over his family's dry cleaning business in Boston. But when he decided not to take it over because he wanted an academic career instead, okay. his father sold it. And so he knew that he, you know, his, he could see his parents were comfortable. He wasn't going to need to take care of them. He might get an inheritance someday. And that gave him the confidence. And his, he didn't have, um, it wasn't a, a, exactly like a trust fund situation, mm-hmm. but it was a confidence. Like, mm-hmm. we'll be okay. I can take the step of building a geodesic dome on a hill in <laughs> Vermont. And if it goes really wrong, we're not going to be destitute. Right. We have our education. We can fall back on it. All we have to do is go back to the city and we'll be okay. And so that those two things, this pessimism of, like, thinking the world's going to end and this kind of confidence, this generational mm-hmm. confidence that, like, and, they were, you know, turns out they were right. They The people who did go back to the cities generally did step right generally back into the middle okay. class and yeah. the kids and I will say almost all their kids even ones raised in really um, austere rural poverty really whose childhoods really were spent with many of the trappings of rural poverty almost all of them ed- ended up the ones that I've you know come into contact with ended up themselves going back into Fine. the middle class yeah. and having had a okay. college education because their grandparents stepped in so that to me was re- also really interesting this kind of like fear but then this you know privilege that let them take these risks. I love that you confront that. Yeah, that like sort of still like that awareness of some sort of power or entitlement even. Mm -hmm. And um, you're right that, you know, also we didn't even get into it this much, but even though they were surrounded by totally new environments or making things from scratch, still trappings of sexism came through in these in these communities. And, um, yeah, so much more to talk about. Um, I love, I just want to throw out there that, um, you know, some of the things that they created, like the design of, of houses have come back in, in vogue these days with the tiny house craze. Also, the design of the Whole Earth Catalog by Stuart Brand was something that Steve Jobs said was really influential to him in his design of uh, interface, user interface, I guess. Um, fascinating stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the Whole Earth Catalog to mm-hmm. me is so is such an interesting thing. I hadn't quite realized. Um, if listeners have not gone and looked at the Whole Earth Catalog, you absolutely should. Yeah, it's amazing. Check it out. And it, and um, you know, Stuart Brand um, came out of all kinds of. I mean, he himself is completely fascinating. But he um, had friends who were living in these rural communes, kind of in the southwest, but in other parts of the country as well. And he 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 had this revelation while on an acid trip. Um, well, of, uh, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that mm-hmm. was the whole, the whole earth. The whole earth. The idea of, He's, you know, why okay. haven't we seen the whole earth? And so that was where that type, that word came from. But then he also realized that, like, 
his friends living on these rural communes needed something like L.L. Bean was his, his yes. sort of like, you know, they just can know where to find the things, the tools that they need. And so to me, that was, Skull again, milking buckets, I don't know, stuff like that. Yeah, but again, super interesting. They put themselves in the situation and then they went and amassed mm-hmm. the resources and then figured it out, which I think is, to me, that was like a really interesting generational way to decide that, that you're just going to like go stick yourself there and then then work backwards. And so for him, the whole earth catalog was like a fit of passion and then figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Or like a way to like, because you think the apocalypse is coming. Right. Um, right. And so he developed, he and his wife developed um, this catalog that gave, told people where they could order the things that they might need. And then um, he's, he's kind of a central figure in this whole movement too. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he, uh, it, certainly, his influences. I'm not sure that he himself would identify as a as a you know as a um, figure in the Back to the Land movement. But absolutely, the whole Earth catalog. Everybody, everybody <laughs> read the whole Earth catalog. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that's about all the time we have for today. But there's so much to talk about in this wonderfully written book, uh, Kate. I'm so excited to to read more from you. I know this is your first book. Um, congratulations. Um, and I can't wait to hear more. It's just out. It's called We Are Gods. And uh, check, uh, can we follow you on your website? or? Yes, um, I have my website is um, katedalos.com, K A T E D A L O Z.com. And I have an author Facebook page also. Check name. it out. Um, thank you so much for joining us again. We'll look forward to, to seeing more of you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eager Words. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Yeah, you